This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Whether you're working out or working on your high score, you never settle for less. So why should it be any different when you choose your protein drink? Rockin' Protein comes in three delicious flavors, has 30 grams of protein, and is always made with fresh milk. So you're never left with that chalky taste. Rockin' Protein. Never settle for less than a great-tasting, high-quality protein drink. Visit rockinprotein.com to find Rockin' Protein wherever you are. Rockin' Protein and Shamrock Farms are registered trademarks of Shamrock Foods Company. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hello and welcome to the last Battleground podcast of the year with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Military historians, we think, will look back on 2023 as a landmark year that saw two major wars whose outcomes will have a significant effect on the future of world events. The conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza are far from over, of course, but in this episode we'll be revisiting the major events of the year in both theatres and trying to give some sense of where they might go in the year ahead. We'll also, as usual, be updating you on recent events in both places, starting with Ukraine, where there's been some very welcome good news, hasn't there, Patrick? What with the successful strike on the Russian supply ship in Crimea and an interesting and positive development on the aviation front. That's right, Saul. It seems the Russians have scaled back their air operations in southern Ukraine after losing three Su-34 jets just before Christmas. Now, these are their super sophisticated, top-of-the-range fighter bombers. They're the best kit the Russian Air Force have to offer. And they've been using them to lob glide bombs into the bridgehead Ukrainian forces have established on the left bank, i.e. the east bank of the Dnipro, uh, south of Kherson. That's where three of them were shot down. Another was apparently blasted out of the sky near Mariupol, Now, what did for them? Uh, It looks like they may have been the victim of Patriot missiles supplied by Germany. These aircraft need to get within 25 miles, roughly, of their target before they can release their bombs. Now, the Patriot has a range of 100 miles in optimum conditions, so they can swap down these Su-34s from relative safety. Uh, Now, they're very expensive, uh, the Sukhois, and they're very difficult to replace And these Ukrainian successes mean the Russians have lost a fifth of their fleet with little chance of replacing them. As the Chekalov aviation plant, where they come from, they only produce a handful of these a year. So if the Russians decide to cut their losses, it will greatly improve the Ukrainian situation on the East Bank. Isn't that right, Saul? Yes. The reason the Russians were risking air assets in this way was to try and dislodge the Ukrainians from their bridgehead on the East Bank of the Dnipro. 
They'd increased the use of glide bombs to make up for the fact that Ukrainian strikes had suppressed Russian long-range artillery in the area, which was threatening the bridgehead. Now, if the trend continues, this will present an opportunity for Ukrainian forces to operate more freely, both on the west bank of the Dnipro, from where the supplies needed to sustain the bridgehead are coming from, and to make life easier for those forces on the east bank, and, of course, to put them in a good position to launch further offensive operations as and when the circumstances allow. But there's also been another positive development. On the 26th of December, a Ukrainian missile took out the Russian landing ship Novocherkask in the Crimean port of Feodosia. You may remember her sister ship was destroyed while in harbour in Sevastopol last year. Well, the Novocherkask was apparently hit by air-launched British-supplied Storm Shadow cruise missiles fired from Su-24 bombers. The event seems to scotch rumours that the Ukrainians have been given only the shorter range version of the Storm Shadow, limited to 190 miles in order to comply with international arms control agreements on exporting missile technology. Instead, it seems Ukraine has the full fat 340 mile range version, which obviously greatly extends Kyiv's options and allows Ukraine to more effectively pursue its strategy of making life as unpleasant as possible for the Russians in Crimea. They might not ever be able to take it back in a ground offensive, but they will be capable of making it unfeasible as a base for military operations. Now, on the political front, there have also been some interesting predictions coming out of the EU, haven't there, Patrick? Yes, but I'd also like to note that these operations may not in themselves have a huge amount of intrinsic military value, obviously knocking down the SU-34s has in a tactical sense, but the blowing up the ship, not so much. Uh, it's not actually going to change the situation in Crimea hugely. But it, but what it does do is send a signal uh, both to Russia uh, and to the Ukrainian public and to the world at, at large that there is real determination in Kiev to carry on the fight. Uh, that's a signal to the Russians that don't think we're going to give up and, and uh, you know fold our tents and disappear any day soon to the Ukrainian public that among the leadership, there is still this resolve, this very strong resolve to deliver something that looks like victory. And to the wobblers among the Western allies in Europe, particularly, and uh, in America, that uh, Ukraine is a reliable ally. It's going to keep fighting this war for as long as it gets the kit. So these are very important political results, as well as probably more so, actually, than the military results. Now, what about on the Russian side? Now, you mentioned these diplomatic developments. This, this is a reference to a statement by the EU's foreign affairs high representative. His name is Joseph Borrell. So I suppose he's the EU's top diplomat. Now, he made a statement, which um, I suppose is kind of an end of year sum up statement, when he said he thinks that Russia's war aims uh, in Ukraine have now solidified. In his view, Putin will not be satisfied with just limited territorial gains in Ukraine. He intends to pursue a maximalist agenda and uh, to hold on for total victory. I suppose this analysis uh, is based on the change of circumstances, or at least from the perception of the Kremlin. So the situation has greatly improved since, uh, from a Russian perspective, from the summer when it seemed that uh, they might uh, be in a mood to take a deal that left Russia in place in large parts of eastern Ukraine. There were no serious attempts uh, to put forward a plan, but I think it was, well, maybe at some point 
will just um, say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll draw the line where we are now and call that a victory. And of course, you know, hanging on to Crimea, of course, terribly important. But Putin, I think, probably does believe now the situation has swung in his favor and it will continue to go his way. Burrell warns that Europe and America should prepare, therefore, uh, for a long and high-intensity war that will require generous and unwavering support uh, to make sure that the right side comes out on top. He's an interesting man, Burrell. He's 76. He's been around for a long time. He's a Spanish socialist, an aeronautical engineer by trade, and he doesn't mind speaking his opinions in a forceful manner, which has got him into some hot water in the past. His verdict on Putin's current war aims uh, chimes with what our friends at the Institute for the Study of War think. What's your view, Saul? Well, I mean, in a sense, not a whole lot's changed uh, through the course of the year. I've just been listening to Putin's New Year speech, which we reported in our very first podcast of 2023, Patrick. Uh, That was his New Year's uh, Day speech for the beginning of this year. And he was pretty much talking about bringing back, you know, the usual bluster, bringing back Ukraine into the Russian sphere of influence, very much a sense that, you know, the whole of the country was going to come back under Russian control. And and not a whole lot has changed since then. Now, then you could argue it was perhaps more bluster than a real reflection of his intentions. Now, well, certainly in Putin's perception and possibly also in the perception of many Western analysts, he's in a stronger position. And the fact that he is, is at least partly the fault of the West. They've taken his nuclear rhetoric far too seriously. They failed to demonstrate a real seriousness of intent in terms of backing Ukraine uh, by getting as many weapons and as effective weapons to the battlefield as quickly as humanly possible. And the end result of this, of course, is that without air power, certainly uh, the lack of those F-16s, I suspect, has made a big difference to what might have been uh, more gains in the summer when they finally launched their offensive. And we know from various sources, including uh, Zelensky and Zeluzhny, of course, the armed forces chief, that that offensive would have come far quicker before the Russians had had a chance to properly entrench themselves if they'd got those weapons earlier. But we have to be honest, Patrick, and admit that we probably did underestimate the strength of Putin's position as Russia's ruler, didn't we? Yes, I don't think we were alone in that. But the fact is that uh, Putin's proved far more resilient and the Russian people far more docile and accepting than we imagined. Uh, We were using history as our guide as we often do, but it didn't prove particularly helpful in this case, did it? Uh, In the summer, it really did seem that that Putin was teetering on the edge of being ousted one way or another. I mean, just think back to the extraordinary saga of Evgeny Prigozhin. Now, here's a figure, Prigozhin, who could only really uh, have risen to prominence in the bizarre conditions of Putin's Russia. This is an ex-jailbird turned catering tycoon. He becomes the boss's chef and somehow parlays his position to emerge as a warlord commander of the Wagner group of mercenaries who, even though they're actually quite small, they come to play a central part in Russia's war effort uh, in Ukraine. Now, power clearly goes to old Evgeny's head. He starts criticizing in incredibly uh, offensive language. I was listening to some of his rants the other day uh, and reading them in translation. He's in, in unbelievably sort of insulting terms that, with which he belabors 
uh, the military establishment, particularly Shoigu. And of course, all this by implication is an assault on Putin himself. So on 24th of June, flush with a victory in Bakhmut, uh, he launches uh, a mutiny, which for a day or two, it looks as if it might succeed. Uh, they march on Moscow, take Rostov on Don. It looks like they might actually, this little band of uh, desperados might actually topple the government. Fizzles out, of course, but bizarrely, no action is taken by Putin against Prigozhin. He denounces uh, the whole episode, but, but Prigozhin is sort of walking freely and actually appears to, to be back in, in Putin's good graces. And it's a full two months before Putin takes his revenge when on August the 23rd, Prigozhin's plane is blasted out of the sky. But we, we must admit we got this wrong, didn't we? So we, we, we took this as a sign of Putin's weakness. We thought that he was basically afraid of kind of um, provoking the kind of ultra-right nationalists and all the rest of it, and that he thought it better to, to, uh, to leave Prigozhin alone. Of course, that was never his plan. He knew what he was doing, Putin and uh, calculated that uh, revenge was a dish best eaten cold. But he also got other big things right. He guessed the mood of the country right. He believed that they would swallow, or enough of them would swallow this lie that um, Russia was engaged in an existential war. And, um, you know, among among the troops themselves, there, there were plenty of reports of, of, of minor mutinies, of desertions, etc., during the course of the year, but that all seems to have settled down for now and no one appears to be actually challenging either the purpose of the war or the conditions they're fighting it in. Um, that could all change, of course. But uh, how do you think things are going to go on the Ukrainian side in the coming year, Saul? Well, we talked about some of the positive aspects um, that have just happened in the last week or so, but there's been something you know, that the Ukrainians wouldn't have wished, and that's that they've just withdrawn from Marinka, which is a very small settlement to the west of Donetsk City. And it's, I suppose you could say, the first uh, major capture for the Russians since Bakhmut. So that's bad news. Zolushny's downplayed it to a certain extent by saying, well, we've withdrawn to the, uh, you know, to the borders of the town itself, uh, you know, because this is a tactical retreat and the town's effectively been destroyed. It's still not a good sign. You know, what does this mean in the bigger picture? Well, the ISW are saying this may be a tactical reverse, but in no way is it going to presage an operational success for the Russians because they simply don't have the ability to create advances in an operational sense. That's a kind of joined up victories altogether, meaning some kind of big advance that ultimately is going to turn the tide. And I think you could say right across the battlefield, although Russia is still technically attacking now, it's losing enormous numbers of men. It's, it's using a lot of material in terms of artillery shells, and it's really making very few advances. So what can we anticipate for the year ahead for the Ukrainians? I don't think they're going to be defeated on the battlefield by a long stretch. We'll have to wait and see if the financial and military aid from the West is going to be confirmed in the next week or two. I suspect it will be. Nevertheless, of course, there is going to be war weariness on the uh, Ukrainian side. There are manpower problems, how many more extra people they're going to have to recruit into their army to keep the Russians at bay. And of course, there's 
political uncertainty. We've already spoken about the sort of, you know, the, the beginning of attacks on President Zelensky from, you know, other people with political ambitions, be they Zeluzhny or, of course, the mayor of Kiev. So this political uncertainty isn't going to help matters either. And yet, at the same time, certainly if the economic and military support is confirmed, and as I say, I think it will be soon, there's an awful long way for Russia to go to getting anywhere close to what it hopes, as you say, Patrick, are still its ambitions, which in effect is to, you know, get back to right at the beginning of the war, 2022, uh, and recover the whole of Ukraine under Russian influence. I simply don't see that as likely. But what about things in Russia, Patrick? How do you think they're going to develop there? Well, I think uh, just because things look good for Putin now, it doesn't mean that they're going to stay that way forever. I think we don't spend enough time looking at what's happening on the economy. Now, okay, sanctions didn't deliver instant results. Uh, I think you'd have to be pretty optimistic to think they they would. But um, quietly, they are gnawing away at the entrails of uh, the Russian economy. And I that one day, sooner or later, that is going to impact on the way that the general population uh, feels about the war, which in turn will will apply pressure on Putin if he wins the elections in March, which I think would be pretty, uh, is a very strong probability that he is going to. So, yeah, I think uh, in, we don't know when, but at some point that is going to actually come into play. That economic piece will slot into play and that I think will uh, can only have negative consequences for Putin and for the conduct of the war. I think on the political front, there's no obvious challenger. I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, connected to the security services the other day. And uh, even though that's their job, they do admit that Russia remains very opaque. It's very hard to read the runes. So I think it'd be rash of me to make any predictions at this point. But whatever happens, it's going to be interesting. We're now going to turn to Gaza for the remainder of this half We all know what happened on October the 7th, the terrible events of that day, and the consequences are still very fresh in our minds. So I don't think we need to revisit all that. But what we should do is try and see where all this is going to go in 2024. What are your predictions, Saul? Uh, Well, I'm not terribly optimistic, as you can imagine, Patrick. I mean, only this week, the Israeli chief of staff, Herzi Halevi, said that Israel's war on Hamas will last for, and I quote, many months more as their objectives, which, by the way, have now, I think, been reduced from the total destruction of Hamas to, in essence, the destruction of the leadership. And he describes them as essential and not simple to achieve. And he added, there are no magic solutions. There are there are no shortcuts in dismantling a terrorist organization, only determined and persistent fighting. And then he went on to say how tricky it's going to be to get the top leadership, but they were going to keep going in, in their attempt to do that. So all all these talks about about uh, you know a permanent ceasefire, these endless calls. Will America put more pressure on Israel? I mean, frankly, they are digging in their toes and saying this is going to go on for an awful long time. Are there any signs of optimism at all? Well, there have been actually coming out of Israel. Interestingly enough, a lot of sources talking about Israel presenting a three-stage ceasefire and hostage-for-prisoner exchange deal to both Israel and Hamas. Now, remember, the two, two problems with this. This deal, ultimately, it's supposed to be linked with some kind of political solution for 
Gaza after the war is over. Saudi Arabia has come in with the suggestion that there, there would be some kind of technocratic Palestinian government after the war. And yet all of these deals uh, kind of uh, assume that Hamas is going to have some say in what happens afterwards. And that, of course, goes completely against Israel's stated aims in this war. So it's really hard to see that even even you know, moving ahead, just getting a bit more of a ceasefire, uh, the release of more hostages is going to be incredibly difficult without Israel accepting that at some stage it's got to talk to Hamas. And if it doesn't, of course, we can see this dragging on for months. You know, it could be it could be a year or more. Um, you know, all of that's pretty depressing. What do you think, Patrick? I don't really know where this is going to go, Saul, because I don't think the Israelis actually know themselves uh, at this point. Like you say, they've committed themselves uh, to a long war. Netanyahu repeated this just the other day. Hamas must be destroyed so we can expect more killings of civilians. It's going on unabated, more or less. 21,000 just figure is just about to be passed, according to uh, statistics from the Gaza Health Ministry, as we always say, controlled by Hamas. But um, as I always say, I think that's probably not an inaccurate figure. But uh, Israel doesn't really have a way out at the moment, does it? It's got to carry on with its stated aims, deliver something that it can present to the public, uh, the IDF can present to the public, and Netanyahu can present to the electorate as, well, revenge, but also a kind of victory. But I think on the diplomatic front, there's nothing that looks as if it can deliver a meaningful ceasefire anytime soon. These Egyptian proposals that are being talked about, which would bring about a you know a lasting ceasefire in return for Hamas relinquishing power and to be followed by elections. What do Hamas get out of it? Well, um, in return for giving up power, they would get some sort of undertaking that they weren't going to be pursued or prosecuted. I just don't see that happening. I don't think the Israelis uh, could sell that to a population that's been what the people of Israel have just been through. So peace is a very long way off. I don't see the Gulf partners in the Abraham Accords wanting to get stuck into this morass. Uh, There was talk before of them perhaps providing sort of peacekeepers or something like that. Um, That I think would be seen as really as doing the Israelis dirty work for them. So when the war finally ends, they are, well, even now they've got a moral responsibility for 2.3 million people, uh, most of whom have been displaced from their homes. Their situation is bad and it's only going to get worse. In many cases, there are no homes for them to go back to. So you've got a big shelter issue, you've got basic issues of water, sanitation, healthcare. And, and this is a huge kind of responsibility that uh, they've now made for themselves by invading Gaza. All this, of course, adds up to increasing international isolation. They're kind of already in a, a huge row with the UN refusing to renew visas or grant new ones to UN staff. Now, that might sound like a small detail, but it's symptomatic, I think, of a trend. The only country that Israel really cares about, of course, is America. But I think in the US, whoever wins the election, um, they're going to have to take account of a changing mood, particularly among young voters towards Israel. They didn't grow up with this romantic idea of the country, and they definitely don't see Israel as a point of light, democratic light in the sea of oriental darkness. So whoever wins and whoever comes after them is going to have to take into account this sort of of sea change in American public thinking, which is developing and I think will continue to develop. 
And so, you know, in the long run, Israel can't really be sure of unwavering support. Well, that's all for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions and bringing you some news of a very good friend of the podcast, Ukrainian Electronic Warfare Commander, Colonel Pavlo Hazan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Well, as Patrick said before the break, we've had some news from someone who's been a fascinating contributor to the podcast, and that's our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Pavlo Hazan. I met him, if you remember, during our trip to Ukraine in the summer. And I've just got a message from him, actually a Christmas message, but also to say that he was currently recuperating in the central hospital of the armed forces of Ukraine in Kyiv. He hasn't been injured, fortunately, but as he put it in his message to me, uh, his body could not withstand prolonged stress and began to break, which will give uh, listeners an indication of the sort of mental difficulty that anyone fighting constantly in the front line with the sort of responsibilities Colonel Hazan has had uh, to try and get through all of this in one piece. And of course, uh, he needs a bit of recuperation time. So we just wanted to say on the podcast, we're sending all our best wishes to Colonel Hazan for a speedy recovery so that he can get back to doing what he does best. But I also know that he's had a chance to see some of his family over the Christmas break. So there is just a tiny little uh, silver lining for Colonel Hazan in this uh, brief step down from his military responsibilities. We've got one here from Dave. I've been seeing rumours that F-16s have finally arrived in Ukraine and also read reports stating that three Russian planes were shot down in one day and now a Russian warship destroyed in Crimea. Could F-16s be behind this? Most reports have hinted at new Patriot systems being responsible for shooting down the Russian jets. But what about the warship? Well, I think uh, it's pretty well established that it was Patriots that that took down those... uh, SU-34s. Do you think there's any chance it could have been F-16s? But on the broader question, Saul, do you think the F-16s are about to make their debut on the battlefield? And if so, what difference will that make? Yeah, on the specifics of whether um, F-16s were involved in any of these recent victories we've mentioned today, almost certainly not. You mentioned uh, Patrick the Patriots. Um, We've also talked about the Storm Shadows almost certainly being involved in knocking out the warship. But uh, F-16s, it does appear that they're either on or very close to the battlefield. Uh, And we've had confirmation from the Dutch. And we were slightly concerned that the Dutch might be withdrawing back from their offer of these F-16s. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, And the question is, what difference could they have on the battlefield? Well, uh, time will tell. If listeners think back to the episode when we were asked this question before, actually, we we did give quite a lot of detailed information on what the F-16 is capable of doing. And although it's a jet that's been in operation, I think since the 1980s, hasn't it, Patrick? I mean, certainly for an awful long time. But of course, you must remember, so the Patriots, by the way, uh, I should add, and you you must also remember that the Americans are very good at constantly updating their kit. And so the F-16s will not be the equivalent 
equivalent of the original F-16s, and they are capable of doing an awful lot of things. But most importantly, they have a kind of radar system that will allow them to track enemy aircraft and may well tint the balance of power, which is obviously already moving in the direction of the Ukraine, which we know from the downing of the Su-34s, but it may be moving even further in the direction of the Ukrainians if F-16s uh, get up and running. We'll have to wait and see on that. On that issue of updating, Saul, it seems that the uh, Russians haven't managed to keep pace in the same way. You know that may well be a consequence of the, you know, high-tech uh, sanctions regime that's impacting on them. So it may be that these F-16s are at least a match of possibly superior to the Su-34s. But we something to look forward to in the spring. We've got one here from Daniel. Last week, you mentioned Zelensky was resisting calls to mobilize. 500,000 new soldiers. If the Ukrainians do go ahead with the mobilization, do you anticipate much resistance from the Ukrainian public? Additionally, how would they do this? A draft system or mass conscription of males of a certain age? Well, there's been a bit of rumbling about this, hasn't there, Saul? And I did just want to say that they do have a problem with draft dodgers. There's no doubt about that. There have been plenty of media reports tracking people you know, following people who are who are sneaking across the border into Romania and elsewhere. The new moves that are under discussion, I think they're just about to come into effect. So they were going to go before Parliament at the, at the time of speaking. And this is talking about reducing the age of soldiers eligible for frontline duty. The broad thing is they're lowering the age of recruitment or drafting rather from 27 to 25. It's all a bit confusing, but I think what that means is that at present, you don't, you're not eligible for frontline duty until you're 27. That's going to come down to 25. In broad terms, everyone from 18 to 60 uh, is not allowed, males from 18 to 60 are not allowed to leave the country. They've got to be available for some sort of military service. But of course, um, plenty have left. And uh, I read a story the other day about talks going on between Ukraine and Estonia for. Um, Estonia with Estonia offering to return Ukrainian draft dodgers home. I mean, it's it does sound a bit of a dire situation if you're having to look to measures like that to boost your manpower. What, what do you know about it, Saul? Well, it's very curious, isn't it? This idea that no one under 27 and possibly reducing that to 25, as you say, Patrick, can actually serve on the battlefield. I mean, we know from our military history, certainly in the Second World War, that the majority of people doing the frontline fighting in the teeth arms would have been between the ages of 18 and 25. I mean, sometimes, of course, the NCOs would have been a little bit o- older and some of the officers too. But basically, that's that's the cohort that's doing all the fighting. So it's very odd that in a way, the Ukrainians have been trying to protect that new generation. You know, it's the future of the country, of course. But but nevertheless, these are the guys who tend to have the kind of least kind of sense of, oh, my goodness, you know, my life might be flashing in front of me. You know, that, that that's why they use young men to fight, because they don't have this kind of fear and they do make quite good battlefield soldiers. So it is a bit strange that they haven't done that. Uh, and it, it obviously is an untapped resource. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But it, it, clearly, you've, you've got this kind of hybrid scenario, a bit like we had in the UK at the beginning of the First World War. Uh, not the second, of course, because conscription was uh, already in by the time the war began. But in the First World War, as listeners will remember, you, you ask for volunteers initially. And when you don't get enough volunteers, you eventually go to conscription and then you begin to tighten the uh, the regulations on what type of conscription. And that seems to be what's playing out in Ukraine now. Vincent in the Netherlands 
asks about comments you made last week, Saul, saying that you felt that Zeluzhny was playing a dangerous game. This is, of course, the uh, overall military commander in Ukraine, and straying too much into politics. And you also mentioned that that he was increasingly popular among the Ukrainian public. Is there a possibility, asks Vincent, or danger even that Zeluzhny could lead a military takeover of the country and move Zelensky aside as leader? He asks how, if that happened, uh, would Ukraine's allies react? I'm sure it would not go down well with NATO members and the West in general. Vincent asks for our thoughts. I don't think it's very likely myself uh, that Zeluzhny is in any position to mount a military coup. Uh, What do you think, Saul? No, best case scenario, I think for Zeluzhny, if indeed he does have political ambitions, is that he makes his move once the war is over uh, and he uses the leverage of, you know, potentially a successful war leader uh, to further his ambitions in politics. I mean, think Eisenhower after the end of the Second World War. And of course, Many uh, American officers, the original, of course, being Washington himself, once the war was over. And there's a long tradition of former soldiers going into politics in America. So I wouldn't rule that out. But while the war is underway, no, absolutely, it's not going to happen for the very good reason that Vincent's already hinted at, which is that it would go down incredibly badly with the West, even if Zeluzhny felt that he could get away with it with Ukrainian public opinion. Uh, and it would almost certainly give a lot of people in the West the excuse to say, no, we're, we're turning off the taps now. This is simply unacceptable. So I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, we've got one here from Ori Chilman. Doesn't say his location, possibly Israel, possibly not. And he writes, it was shocking and distressing to learn of the deaths of the three hostages, especially so at the hands of their would-be rescuers. And you are right to point out how this may point to a systematic failure in the IDF to protect civilian lives in such circumstances. And he gives a couple of other examples. However, I do feel that you didn't explore another possibility And that is that the killing of Palestinian civilians and journalists could be explained by frightened, trigger-happy, ill-disciplined troops firing first and asking questions later. And why might they do that? Well, uh, what Ori suggests is that you could have had a situation a little bit like you had with the Japanese in the World War II, where Hamas are trying to surrender, but pretending they're trying to surrender and actually using that as an attempt to ambush IDF soldiers. I personally, Patrick, haven't seen any evidence that that is the case. But what's your feeling about that? Well, the question does ask, could it be the case, uh, he, he points out, that the killing of shirtless men with their hands up speaking in Hebrew and claiming to be hostages, how did that happen? The IDF certainly wouldn't willingly kill the people they're there to save. But he's asking whether there's a possibility that Hamas may well have attempted similar deceptions before, as you say, it's all like the Japanese in World War II. Well, my reaction to that is that um, if that was the case, I think the IDF would certainly have been telling the world about it by now. Mm. I can see why you, one might struggle to seek an explanation of the sort that, that you're proposing here, but I'm afraid I just don't think it's very realistic. Okay, we've got one here from Jasper Elgood, uh, and he writes, the idea of a humanitarian pause in the military excesses in Gaza has prevailed, albeit too briefly. There are no armed peacekeepers there, but there is the tacit power of the US now pushing for a remission of violence and in doing so expressing a universal abhorrence of the killing of so many civilians. This shows, he writes, I suppose the inevitable extent to which state power is the main force behind effective internationalism. I'm sure you've covered uh, both the matter of war crimes in Israel, Palestine and the matter of aid, but I would be interested in an overview of the two together. They are historically linked by the fact that the International Committee 
of the Red Cross, as it would come to be called, promulgated the Geneva Convention and started the modern humanitarian or aid community. Both are remarkable innovations in internationalism, an idea as old as Diogenes of Sinope, but relatively new as a significant factor in war. There is much cause these days for despair, but this is surely a hopeful development and the fashionable belief that geopolitics can be understood as Western imperialism oppressing the non-white people of the world is complicated by these originally white and Western international projects, which now emanate a shaft of lucidity into the long nightmare of history. Maybe the Enlightenment, he writes, has not yet run its course. Um, Do you think he makes some good points there, Patrick? Yeah, all this is, um, I think, something we should be looking at in the new year, looking at how, you know, warfare in, in a historical perspective, how what we've been reporting on for the last more than a year now um, actually impacts on how people will understand uh, warfare, how it's developing, and and put it in you know a, a historical context. So yeah, very very thought provoking stuff there from Jasper. Okay, last question here from Evan, My qu- and it's about Avdivka and why Russia is committing so many resources to it. I can only guess it is to gain territory as a buffer for Donetsk, but would like your thoughts. Well, I mean, we, we've addressed this before, and I think in the, in, you know, in, the, in the light of the recent news about Marinka, which, uh, you know, as I said earlier in the pod, is west of the town of Donetsk, uh, and therefore is definitely an attempt to gain, gain a little bit more operational space, as the military would have it, around Donetsk City. Uh, Avdivka, of course, is, is a little bit further to, to the north. And I think what's happening there actually is pretty basic stuff here. It, it's another victory. So Marenko has been heralded by the uh, Russians as a, as a great victory. Of course, it isn't. It, it has relatively little significance beyond this minor tactical victory. A lot of lives have been lost taking it. And the, uh, exactly the same would go for Avdivka. But if you think about it, in the broader sense of the whole war since the since the invasion in in March 2022, the Russians have actually carried out very little of operational significance apart from those initial gains that they made. You know, we're talking about all these strikes behind enemy lines by the Ukrainians, and the Russians have done virtually nothing. Where are their surgical strikes? Where is their knocking off of senior generals or even command posts and certainly major strategic targets? There have hardly been any of that. All they've really done is beat their heads against a brick wall at Bakhmut, Avdivka, and now Marinka, and they've made these very, very marginal gains. And if that's all they've really got to offer on the battlefield, uh, you're not talking about a war-winning machine. But at the same time, they are dogged in defense. Uh, they are prepared to lose a lot of lives in defending their lines. And, and therefore, you do get a potential stalemate. So I think that's really what's going on here. Avdivka is just a chance for a PR victory, but it's not going to uh, change the balance of power really effectively one way or the other. Okay. On that rather gloomy note, we'll wish all our listeners a very happy new year. Let's hope it's a better one for mankind and the one that's just passed. And a reminder that we're launching our Battlefield 44 series next week. So listen out for that. Uh, It's going to be a great tour of all the great events of 44, analyze them, uh, seeing what historiography uh, has made of them in the intervening years and bringing you lots of very dramatic episode and incident. 
And just a couple more things from me. Uh, first of all, uh, to urge you all to keep sending in your questions, and that is to our new email, podbattleground at gmail.com. And also very briefly to mention an initiative by a friend of the podcast, Stevie G, who helped with our Falklands uh, series earlier this year. Now, he's planning a Falklands commemoration seminar by himself and other former operators in pool on the 14th of June, 2024. It's called Corporate 24, and it's raising money for a number of military charities, including the Royal Marines Association and the Ulysses Trust, which is linked to the Parachute Regiment. And if you'd like to contribute, just go to the Just Giving website and type Corporate 24 into the search box. Goodbye. Goodbye.